Thank you, Katie. Good morning once again. I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to the New Testament book of Luke again. We're in Luke chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 38 through 44 this morning. And it is always a grace of God that I make it to this point every week. (laughs) It seems like uh, things always pile up to the end, but thank God that uh, I've made it, I think, so we'll see. So hopefully, uh, for those of you who have been going through this marvelous account together with us, you've been sort of enlightened on three different levels. Uh, First of all, you've learned a little something about Luke and Scripture as a whole. And secondly, you've learned something uh, a little about yourself. But thirdly, and most importantly, uh, hopefully you're learning something more as to the nature and the character of God. As I mentioned before, we all come to church this morning, this Sunday, with a subpar knowledge of how good God really is. We all come here with a deficient view of the magnitude of the glory of God. We all come here with only a finite understanding of the infinite holiness of God. In fact, I was talking with a friend the other day, and if you think about all of the attributes of God, and I think I got this probably from R.C. Sproul, but if you, got, if you think about all of the attributes of God, there is only one that is ever emphasized to the third degree. There's only one that is cried out by the angels in a threefold repetition, and that is holy, holy, holy. You never read any person or angel in the scriptures uh, cry out mercy, 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 or good, 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 or love, 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 and although we like to emphasize those attributes of God, holy, holy, holy is what they cry out to one another. And so as you read through Luke's gospel, I hope and pray that you are starting to see God more infinitely holy than when you started, and that you realize that because he has sent Jesus Christ into the world to redeem us and to free us and to call us out of this world, that you understand just how precious and how miraculous your salvation really, truly is. We serve a holy God who is high and lifted up, who is seated in the heavenly places, yet by the kind intention of his will, he adopts us as sons and daughters. I want you to see that. I want you to know that as we go through Luke. So let's look at Luke 4, 38 through 44 this morning. And if you're able to stand with me, I invite you to stand in reverence of God's word for the reading. Luke 4, 38 says this. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, 
I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for its comfort to us, Lord. And as we study this and read this and come to understand what is written here, Lord, help us to see you as more and more holy than what we came in here with. We all have this, this view that uh, you're just our little buddy walking along with us all the time. But Lord, you are high and lifted up. You are the God most high. You are set apart. But yet, Lord, even with that truth, you have sought to redeem us. You have sought to rescue us. And Lord, just let us be grateful for that. Help our minds to be instructed this morning. And as a result, have our hearts be full of praise and adoration for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've spent the last couple of weeks just uh, looking at the beginning ministry of Jesus Christ and how he was rejected by those who were in his hometown of Nazareth, uh, so much so that they were ready to throw the guy off a cliff, right? And when, we, when he was talking to them about rejecting the prophets back in verses 24 through 27, he really wasn't just making an indictment against them as a, as a city, but really as the Jews in particular and against Israel as a whole. Because there was an incredible amount of animosity and pride by Israel against anyone who was not a Jew, and the very thought of God extending his mercy to the Gentiles was unthinkable. We think about the Old Testament book of Jonah as a prime example of that. He was commissioned to go to Nineveh, which was in Assyria, which was the first nation that destroyed Israel in 722. But he's rejected in Nazareth, and then he moves to Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee, where he's going to concentrate the bulk of his ministry. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, it calls Capernaum uh, in regards to Jesus as his own city. So last week, he entered the synagogue, as was his custom, and he's going to do some business with some demons there, right? And Steve gave us an explanation as to the, the origin and the abilities of the angels and demons, that they're limited and that they don't have omnipresence, they don't have omnipotence, and they don't have omniscience, right? They don't know your thoughts. Only God knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. They can't be everywhere at one time, and they don't have all power and authority here on earth. But unfortunately, with angels and demons alike, we, we tend to get more of our theology from Hollywood than we do actually the scriptures. You don't ever see in the scriptures a definition or a description of a fat baby angel with carrying around a bow and arrow, do you? And they probably don't look like Michael Landon, if that takes some of you back a few years, or they don't look like Roma Downey, okay? But Steve showed us the first, in this first interaction between Jesus and this demon was that this demon recognized Jesus' authority. He recognized his wrath, and he recognized the deity of Jesus. The demon knew who he was. He didn't need an introduction, and this healing of this demon-possessed man will actually be the first of five as we go through the book of Luke. And so we're still here in this same day as this next event occurs. We're still on the Sabbath, which would have been on a Saturday, because in your text, in verse 38, it says there, Then he got up 
and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now let's stop for there just for a moment and let's, let's talk about a few things and note a few things. First of all, typically after a synagogue service, there was a meal and it was the main meal of the day. It's really similar to what we do here at Grace Fellowship Church right after service. We have this big buffet downstairs that we invite you to come to. But the people would gather in a home after service and have a meal together, and in this case, it was in Simon's house. Matthew and Mark both confirm this for us as well. And and Simon's name isn't really changed for us here yet. He hasn't been called as a disciple And we'll get to that in a moment. But this was Simon, who would also be called Peter. And so there's an assumption on Luke's part as he's writing this that the people would know that already since Luke wrote later than Matthew and Mark. But it's interesting to note that in Capernaum, there is what archaeologists believe to be the remnants of the house of Peter. And there's this Byzantine church that was built over top of that and then destroyed in about the 600s A.D. And so its ruins are there as well. But then another church came along and built this church in the 1990 by the Franciscans, this Catholic order, right? And it remains there today. It's it's quite an engineering marvel if you would look at it. It is this massive octagonal structure with all of the pillars outside of the ruins, And it sits down in kind of a bowl right over the top of these ruins and comes within inches of the Byzantine church in Peter's house. It's supposed to look like a uh, fishing boat, but it really looks more like a spaceship. They had good intentions, but if you're fishing in space, hey, it works, right? But on the inside of this church, as you come inside, you uh, go up the staircase and get into it. In the center is a glass squared floor in the bottom middle of it, so you can look down into Peter's house. It's kind of like a glass-bottom boat as you take a boat ride and you can look down into the water. You can actually go into this church and look down into these ruins. But the reason they believe this site is the uh, house of Peter is that, number one, it has always been the site of a church of some sort. From a house church to a Byzantine church to today it's owned by the Catholic church. In fact, as they dug down at this site, And deeper and deeper, and layer after layer, there's one house that stood out in particular. Inside this house, on the wall, were 131 inscriptions in four different languages, with the majority of them being written in Greek. The name of Jesus appears several times, and so are others of his titles, such as Christ, Lord, Most High God. There are even inscriptions of crosses in various forms on these walls. But even as early as 400 A.D., a Spanish pilgrim named Eteria, E-T-E-R-I-A, she journeyed to this very site, and she recorded this in her diary. She says this, quote, In Capernaum, the house of the Prince of Apostles, St. Peter, became a church. The walls, however, of that house have remained unchanged, to the present day. That was in the 400s, 400 years. So there's this high degree of certainty that this site was indeed the house of Peter. But within a stone's throw of this house, there's this synagogue. It would be similar to like this church being here and that school over there being Peter's house. It is that close to one another. The ruins of that synagogue 
are still there today, and they're made of this white, bright limestone. It's very ornate. It was built by the Romans. But as they look at this site, the base of it is a different color. It's black basalt. It's very stark in its contrast where the foundation is and where the Romans started to build. They, they have a sign on this that says, the late 4th century A.D. white synagogue built upon the remains of the synagogue of Jesus. So the synagogue and the house would have been this short walking distance to uh, one another. But on top of that, Peter's occupation being that of a fisherman would have been another short walking distance as the house sits along the Sea of Galilee. It's right along the coastline. And as you look at the aerial view of this, it's, it's really pretty incredible. When you go home tonight, Google Peter's Church Capernaum. We would probably call Peter's home a beachfront home. It's that close to the Sea of Galilee. Now, there are some other people there as well that Luke doesn't give to us who are at this very event. And we'd have to look at Mark 129 to see that Simon's brother Andrew is there, along with James and John. And so, as Luke is recording these events for us, he's giving us the shorthand version, if you will. He's not giving us every uh, detail about these events, but nonetheless, he's giving us essentially what we need to know. The focus isn't on the other individuals that are recorded by Matthew and Mark, but Luke's inspired purpose here is to focus on Jesus Christ. So Jesus and probably this group of men leave the synagogue and they all enter Simon's house. But there's trouble in the home, as our text tells us in verse 38. It says, Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. Now, Luke, being a physician, is the only one of these three gospel writers that tells us that this fever was high. And we would probably expect that of anyone in any sort of expertise in a certain field to give us a little bit more information. If you would ask a doctor what was wrong with someone, they're probably not just going to say, ah, they're sick. They're going to give you a little bit more of a specific diagnosis. And so that's what Luke here is doing. But Peter's mother-in-law is sick enough, she can't get up out of bed to take care of all the company that's in the home. She's horizontal. She's bedridden. And Luke's telling us that she has a high fever typically indicates that she has some sort of infection. We don't know specifically what it is, but all we know is we can... Uh, know that she is sick enough, she can't get up and and help these guests. But it's interesting here that they are going to petition Jesus to help. They had surely heard the stories of of his power and his authority, and they had just witnessed something incredible back in the synagogue with the casting out of the demon. And if you recall from John chapter 4, those events there, Jesus had already healed a royal official's son in that very town. And so there probably was this heightened sense of awe, this sense of wonder in that house that possibly, quite possibly, Jesus could do the very same thing for Peter's mother-in-law. So they're starting to get to the picture here that there is something unique about this Jesus of Nazareth. As, As if his teaching with authority wasn't enough to wow them in the synagogue just a little while ago, they're going to have their proverbial socks knocked off about this guy in just a moment. Verse 39 tells us, And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. Now, Matthew and Mark add that Jesus took her by the hand and brought her to her feet, whereas Luke records for us that he rebuked the fever. 
So not only did Jesus demonstrate that he had power over the spiritual world back in the synagogue, but now he's demonstrating that he has power over the physical world as well in Peter's house. And the thrust of the statement is to demonstrate that it was with just a simple word that he has power over the physical world. By his word, Jesus would heal that centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8. By his word, he would command the demons to enter the swine and drown themselves in the sea in Mark chapter 5. By his word, he would call forth Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. By his word, he would calm the seas in Luke chapter 8. By his word, his power would be demonstrated that he upholds all things, as Hebrews 1.3 tells us. And by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, as 2 Peter 3.7 tells us. So not only does he reign with supreme sovereignty over all creation and not one molecule is ever spinning out of his control, not only does he possess all dominion and all authority over man, land, and beast, Not only does he rule from the lowest depths of the ocean floor to the highest of heavens in deep space, not only is he commanding the morning and causing the dawn to know its place, but he's doing it with just a simple word. When it was time for light to burst forth from the birth of creation, all that was necessary was for him to effortlessly speak as the triune God, let there be light. And there was light. But why does God need to be so mighty for us? Why does God need to be so strong? Why does he need to be such a powerful, broad-shouldered God? Because we're all great sinners. And if we're real honest with ourselves, every single one of us in this room ought to be arguing with Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. No, Paul. I, I am the chief of sinners. We need someone strong enough who can take away our burden of sin. We need someone who can handle the weight of our iniquity. But even though he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords and he's the sovereign king of the universe who rules eternally and with all authority, he cared enough to come down to earth to rescue us and deliver us from our sins. Psalm 103, 10 through 13 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarding us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And so as the king of glory, the Alpha and the Omega, considered Peter's mother-in-law here, he compassionately and he tenderly relieved this woman's infirmity, and he did it all with just a word. Do you know that the Lord cares for you this morning? Do you realize how valuable you are to God as his child? Do you have any idea how tenderly and how deeply God loves you? You might say, well, you know, Matt, I've got this ailment. I've got cancer. I've miscarried a child. My marriage is in shamble. My kids are disobedient. My job stinks. My parents are too strict. How in the world can it be that God loves me 
if all of those are true. You know what, it, what happens when we, when we say such things, what we've done? When we say those things, we've made our understanding of God's love conditional to our temporal happiness. We're looking for our satisfaction in the things of this world, whether it be in our health or our wealth or our happiness or our family situations, rather than looking for our satisfaction in God himself. Mark, or Matthew 6.33 tells us that we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do you want to go to heaven this morning so you can be done with cancer or whatever ails you? Do you want to go to heaven so that someday you can reunite with, reunite with a uh, deceased loved one? Do you want to go to heaven because you're tired of dealing with your family or with your kids? Or do you want to go to heaven because that's where Jesus Christ is? That's the question for our hearts. But in our text here, Jesus displays his compassion for Peter's mother-in-law so much that he heals her, and she doesn't need any recovery time because it says that she immediately got up and waited on them. So Lynn, looking at verses 40 and 41, while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was helping them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. So the text tells us, first of all, that the sun was setting, which is just simply a, a means of telling us that the Sabbath day is over. And, and now since the Sabbath day is over, their means of travel and their restriction against travel has been lifted, and so now people can freely move. And they are going to move straight to Jesus. They're seeking out the one that they had heard stories about. And so not only is he going to heal Peter's mother-in-law individually, but now he's going to start to heal people corporately. And not only is he going to cast out demons in a public worship service, but he's going to cast them out in a private home. And we've seen this before in Luke as he's describing for us the totality and the fullness of Jesus Christ's ministry. There's going to be a breadth and a depth to it. But in verse 41, not only is he going to demonstrate his power to cast out demons, but he's going to demonstrate his authority even to silence them. Because it tells us that he does not allow them to speak. So why would he not allow them to speak? They're, they're speaking some truth there. You are the Son of God. Why is he silencing them? Well, as we said here, they knew exactly who he was, and that's essentially why they feared him so much, right? They knew him to be God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, and that's why they asked back in verse 34, they said, Have you come to destroy us? They know exactly what kind of authority Jesus Christ has. They know exactly their end game, and it's their ultimate destruction. But he silences them. Why? Our answer is in our text. It says, because they knew him to be the Christ. Essentially, he doesn't want them to fully reveal his identity quite yet, because it's not his time to die. Because every time the Jews got wind that uh, Jesus said he was the Son of God, they wanted to kill him. I mean, we saw this violent reaction back in his hometown in Nazareth back in verse 29, right? It wasn't pretty. They're ready to drop the guy off a cliff. 
Because later on, when he's on trial before the chief priest and the elders and the scribes in Mark 14, 61 through 64, it says this, But he kept silent, did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his robes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving death. Had he allowed the demons to testify on his behalf, can you imagine the charges and the accusations the Pharisees would have been able to level against him? Because even later on as he's healing, they're even going to accuse him of healing by the power of Satan himself. But it wasn't his time to reveal himself fully, so he silences the demon and he demonstrates his authority over them even further. So looking in verses 42 through 44, When the day came, Jesus left, and he went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So essentially, that is what our Lord's mission was. It was to preach. It was to proclaim. That's why he read those very specific verses in Isaiah back in verses 18 18 through 19 of Luke 4. Because God's only begotten Son was a preacher. He came to herald the good news of salvation. He didn't just come to provide us with some moral example to try to follow. He didn't come as some positive-thinking guru. He didn't come to be a political messiah or some revolutionary with which you can identify with. Jesus' end goal for America is not culture change. Jesus' end goal for America is that those who would hear his voice would bow the knee, worship God, because culture change is not the root of the gospel, it's just a fruit of it. But he came to proclaim victory over the demonic forces of this world. He came to set the captives free and restore sight to the blind. He came so that he would herald the good news that the wrath of God that you you and I rightly deserve would fall upon him and the burden of sin that you and I have would be cast upon him and he in turn would take and transfer his righteousness to us that you and I would be able to stand holy and blameless before God, a just and holy God. And that we would spend all of eternity in all glory and blessing and honor and praise given to him forever. But he came to preach. He, and he resisted their attempts to restrain him and keep them for their own personal miracle worker. So essentially, if we take a step back, I like to do these Google Earth things, right? We take a step back and we look at our text here we start to notice a chiastic structure starting to take place here. And that is a chiasm. It's C-H-I-A-S-M-A. And what that is essentially is it's a literary technique or a device used to produce an emphasis of some sort. And it's done through repetition and pattern. And they're used all throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. Matthew twenty-three twelve says, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled... And whoever humbled themselves shall be exalted. 
We see this A-B-B-A pattern in thought here. Matthew 6.24 is a larger example. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Within our text here, we see a larger chiastic structure. In verses 31 through 32, he's teaching. In 33 through 37, he performs an exorcism. In 38 and through 39, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. In 40, he heals the many who come to him. In 41, he performs an exorcism. In 42 and 44, he's preaching again. So what's the point of all this? These aren't just isolated stories that Luke decided to pick out. These aren't just random events in the life of Jesus Christ, but they are here for us to tell us that, number one, Jesus has all authority. He has authority over the physical realm, and he has all authority over the supernatural realm. Later on in Luke chapter 5, he's going to demonstrate both. And make sure that everyone in his hearing understands this very clearly when he says, But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, who he just healed, or he's getting ready to heal, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. We must understand that as we struggle against sin, as we struggle against temptation, and the body of flesh that we are in, We must not simply try to do it in our own strength. You can't do it. The Puritan John Flavel, in his book, Keeping the Heart, he wrote about the struggle with sin. He said, quote, The duty is ours. The power is of God. What power we have depends upon the exciting and assisting strength of Christ. Number two, although Jesus has all authority as God incarnate, He is a God who has great mercy. He demonstrated that with Peter's mother-in-law, the man in the synagogue, the many who were coming to him, those who were ill. But this text demonstrates to us God's great mercy. I want you to think about your walk with God this week. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best you could possibly ever do, how would you rank it? Now, some of you might be saying, Matt, is there anything in between 0 and 1? Is there a 0.5, 0.3? Okay? But between 1 and 10, how would you rank your walk with God this week? How much time did you spend in reading God's Word? How much time did you spend in sweet communion and prayer with Him? How much time did you commit to expanding the kingdom of God by sharing the gospel with someone? How much time or how much did you give of your resources and of your time and your money for the cause of Christ? And how thankful were you to God this week for his many abundant blessings? If we're really honest with ourselves, we're all pretty low on that scale. But yet our great and gracious God gives us another day of breath. He gives us another day to praise him. He gives us another day to try to walk with him as he rightly deserves. Each day that you have and each day that any of us have is mercy from God. John Piper wrote in his book, Desiring God, he said, quote, none of us have trusted God the way we should. None of us have felt the depth of the consistency of gratitude we owe him. None of us have obeyed him according to his wisdom and right. We have exchanged and dishonored his glory again and again. We have trusted ourselves. We have taken credit for his gifts. 
We have turned away from the path of his commands because we thought we knew better. End quote. Yet God has given those of us here today an extension of his mercy. So I'll close this morning by inviting you to understand the mercy of God. And if you've never experienced the mercy of God, please get with Steve or myself after the service. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that our God is merciful and gracious. The scriptures tells us that he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This morning, whatever ails you, whatever hinders you, look to Christ. Look to Christ in whatever circumstance you're in or whatever is, is you know, the thorn in your, thre- in your flesh, and God will demonstrate his great mercy to you. Let's pray. Father, you are merciful. You are high and lifted up. Lord, you are holy. You are set apart. Yet, you would come down and rescue the creature. You would come down and redeem us and take this burden of sin away from us, Lord. Help us to walk rightly. Help us to be disciplined for the the pursuit of godliness, Lord. And help us to keep our heart. Not by our power and our strength, Lord, but help us to wholly depend upon you for everything. For you are good to us, you are faithful, and you are merciful. For that we give thanks to you, O God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.